Hey, welcome back to Sermon Notes. This is Michael. I'm alongside Tad Moore. How's it going? Our team leader for Fayetteville's Fellowship Student Ministries. We call it FSM. We've got Josh Blakely here producing as always. Josh, appreciate the good work you do every week to make this podcast happen. And uh, Tad, you and I were together last week in the service as you got to share about some things the yeah. Lord's doing in FSM. And this week, we're going to trade jobs because you're going to be teaching. All right. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Yeah, looking forward to hearing from you. So, we're in John chapter 9 as we continue this series on the signs or miracles of Jesus in the book of John. Uh, tell us what's going on. This is kind of a remarkable chapter and, and a relatively long story that John tells us here. Yes, it's a, it's the whole chapter. is like 40-some-odd verses, uh, 41 verses long. And so it's kind of a brief summary of what happens in this encounter, this, this miracle. Jesus passes by a man who it says has been blind since he was born. Uh, we don't get his exact age. Later, we see that he is an, is considered an adult at this point, so potentially decades of, of blindness. And Jesus, just seemingly in an act of compassion, heals him on the spot. Um, he, he anoints his eyes with mud that he makes uh, with his spit and dirt, which sounds really strange, and then rubs it on his eyes, tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, and he comes back seeing uh, and this causes some serious controversy in the community because some people are like, we don't even know if this is the same guy that was born blind. How can he see now? Uh, Jesus healed him on a Sabbath day, so that upsets the Pharisees again. Uh, and it just kind of culminates in this uh, this man claiming that he's been healed, and eventually he's kicked out of the community of, of Jews. He's kicked out of the synagogues, but Jesus finds him again and asks him if he believes and reveals himself to this man, and the man worships him as the Messiah. Uh, and so, again, a long story with a lot of moving parts and different characters and people to consider, but um, the, I think the essence of it is that Jesus restores sight to this man who hasn't been able to see his whole life. Yeah, and it's so hard, I think, for us to to not lose our awe at these miracles, yeah. that this man has spent his entire life unable to see, and then in a brief encounter with Jesus, he's given his sight. I mean, it's amazing. It, is. it makes me think of, like, sometimes you see those videos on, like, YouTube of people who are either have, have been deaf uh, their whole life and, and then being able to do implants and they can hear for the first time and just the, the shock and awe of that being able to have that sense hurry back or even people that have maybe been colorblind being given corrective glasses and just the awe of being able to see color. And it it, it is amazing to think through what this man went through. Yeah, yeah, it really is. So right off the bat, I have a question for you. And I, you know, of course, I'm always thinking, how's this going to go in community group? And it seems like in community group, the first thing that's going to jump out at us is the disciples' question. Mm. It's in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Um, talk to us about the nature of that question as well as Jesus' response. Right. Um, yeah, from from things I've read on this, and, and even I think we see stuff like this in our culture, but culturally for them, um, they would have probably attributed a lot of ailments or disabilities, diseases to a type of punishment from God, um, even outside of Jewish cultures, that would have been kind of the, the way things went, that if you had an infirmity or something go wrong, typically you had upset the gods. And so I think there's probably a little bit of cultural um, influence at play here of them seeing this man who has this disability, and they think that their theological question is, God, is this a, or Jesus, is this a punishment that this man deserved to be born blind? Is it something his parents did? Why is he having to go through this? And they may even be reaching back to uh, to. Exodus, um, in chapter 34, where, where God 
passes in front of Moses and he kind of introduces himself. It says the Lord gives his name uh, to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And so they may be reaching back to that and, and really grabbing onto something that is real, that, that God takes sin seriously, and that oftentimes our sin impacts those around us, usually uh, always does. Um, our sin isn't just an individual thing. It always affects ourselves, but those around us. And um, generational sin, I think, is a thing that the, the sins of our parents and our grandparents have effects on our own lives. And yet, Jesus challenges them on this of, it wasn't that he sinned or his parents sinned. He seems to say, you're, you're taking that idea of sin as a has consequences on those around us and you're you're going too far by trying to uh, like uh, assign blame for everything that goes wrong um, or every sort of consequence or, or infirmity that it has to be connected back to some specific person's sin. I think there's a desire to assign blame. And again, I think that we see a lot of that in our own culture that we look at stuff and we try to assign blame to someone. Yeah. Yeah. We always, I think part of it's just human psychology that we want to think um, they must have done something for that mm-hmm. to happen to them. Therefore, that won't happen to me because I won't do that thing. Right. Um, when in reality, um, we live on a fallen planet in a broken world, and um, bad things happen. Mm-hmm. And some sometimes it's things that are beyond anyone's control. What jumps out at me in this, Tad, is Jesus' statement. Um, it was that God, um, the works of God might be displayed in him. And mm-hmm. I think it's just a good reminder for us that, Every single person, regardless of their ability, disability, um, mm-hmm. their capacity, um, God's goodness is shown in them. Yeah. Um, His image is in them. You know, here at Fellowship, we used to call it one-to-one. Now we call it Fellowship Disabilities Ministry. But, um, man, we valued people. We value people um, who may be um, living life with different forms of disability mm-hmm. or different limited capacities. And we want this to be a place where they feel welcome um, and where we see God's um, mm. God's design in them, um, and we don't look at those people and think, um, "Man, w- why did this happen? Was it yeah. them? Was it their parents? No, it was so that the works of God could be shown in them." Right. And we want to help uncover that. Yeah. Which at first, I'll be honest, I even and maybe it's something to talk about in community groups. Of I, I read that and it almost made me uncomfortable with the thought, and I think it's a wrong thought. I'll preface it with that, but just to think, why would God? let this man be born blind just so that he could glorify himself in him. Like, is that, that almost makes God um, seem harsh or, or um, unfair. Uh, capricious. Maybe a little bit that he just did this to prove a point. But I think just like you kind of drew attention to it's it's more of him saying um, he was born that the, the glory of God be shown through him. And that's true of all human beings. Right. We're made in God's image and meant to extend, Tend a sense of his image and glory to the ends of the earth. And I think that, just like you said, this is giving dignity to even those that do have disability. They're in, included in that also, um, that that all human beings, no matter um, their ability, race, class, et cetera, all are made in God's image and um, for the works of God to be done and to, to be seen for God's glory and our, and our joy. So. So let's value them and love them, yes. regardless of yeah. all those Which, things to, that you just mentioned. Yeah, to go back to even that, uh, like the, the Exodus 34 passage, um, in that, that that idea that God takes sin seriously and that there's consequence for sin generationally, 
Uh, the thing right before that that's way more exaggerated beyond God's judgment on sin is his compassion and his willingness and slow to anger and willingness to forgive. Yeah. And this story of him healing the blind man, I think is a great example of, it seems like he is moved to compassion in this more than his desire to judge sin. He mm-hmm. sees someone in need and he wants to help because that's who God is. Yeah. Thanks for processing that with me. That's that's the idea of this podcast is uh, let's bring people in on the conversations that we have around the office as we try to process these passages and understand them yeah, together. Yeah, still processing them. Yeah, for sure. So um, as the story unfolds, we have these different, you mentioned it as you were setting it up, these characters, these people in the story. Um, what about the neighbors? What's their deal? They're like, is this the same guy? Yeah. I think that's, I think it's almost, it's almost like some comedy in this. So they're talking, they're like, is that the same guy that used to beg um, outside of town? And, and I was like, no, but he just looks like him. And, and then a the man chimes in and he says, no, it's me. Like I am the dude right. <laughs> that was blind. That was me. And I, I can see now. And, they seem skeptical uh, and they ask, well, how, how did you gain your sight? And he explains what happened of how Jesus anointed his eyes with mud and told him to go wash in the pool. And it seems like they still don't believe in like, well, where is he? Like, all right, maybe that happened, but show us, show us this man, Jesus, who supposedly mm-hmm. did this to you. And uh, I almost feel bad for this guy. Like he had this amazing experience and nobody will take him seriously. Right. Um, but I, I think that that just speaks to, I think, even in my own life, just the, the skepticism that I have to wonder, like, can God really change people? I know oftentimes we'll say things like, nobody changes. People people don't change. Nobody, right. nobody can change. And right. Do we believe that Jesus actually can change things about us? I know. I think we all have a little cynicism where we see a radical life change and we think, we'll see. We'll see. Oh, Check yeah. back in six months and see if there's still. But yeah. No, let's just celebrate totally. this person's on a new a new path. Yeah. And there may, like... There, there may be some wisdom in not being completely naive if somebody says they've changed and, and, and they've once engaged in sins that have hurt you. And maybe there is still some wisdom in having boundaries, but also believing that people can change and God can take the worst of sinners and make them new creations. Mm. Um, and we can walk in forgiveness for others, despite what maybe they've even done to us in the past. So then the Pharisees get involved because of course this happens on the Sabbath. Of course. And Jesus seems to uh, almost intentionally again, do something that would, would, go against their idea of the Sabbath, him making mud with his spit crosses the line of their uh, boundaries that they'd put up against the Sabbath because it's too close to kneading bread or um, there are certain other things about uh, maybe him telling him to go wash that would have crossed their imaginary lines around the Sabbath and they can't have that. God would never behave in a way that went against what they said um, is kind of their posture in this and it blinds them to what Jesus is trying to communicate. They're more concerned about artificial rule breaking than Hmm. the fact that this man's been given his sight. Yeah. Which sort of in their defense, like I get why they're afraid. Like they, they under, like they've gone through the, their history and they know that their people were exiled from the land and, and experienced consequences of not keeping the Sabbath. So I get why they're so like particular about it, but they almost get so particular about it that they don't, they do not almost, they get so particular about it that they miss God. Yeah. So then they bring in his parents. That's part of the story. Right. What's going on with them? Yeah. And this is the one that this is probably the part of the story that makes me the most sad. Uh, They bring the parents in to prove, is this actually your son? Who has he been blind his whole life? They're still not believing it. And the parents say this, they say, we know that this is our son, that he was born blind, but how he sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. 
And we get a little parenthetical statement. It says that the parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And that's why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. And I just see a lot of, like, the fear of the parents of they, they kind of hang their son out to dry a little bit here. Mm-hmm. He's had this amazing life change experience. He is asking questions at this point on who is this Jesus who healed me? And yet they feel the cultural pressure of you're going to hurt our status in the synagogue if you keep talking like this. And if we agree with you that the, you've experienced this change, then we're going to get kicked out and they're unwilling to give up their sense of status and, and um, position to go there with him, which is, I don't know, it just makes me really sad. Yeah. Uh, to think that, uh, I don't know, maybe, but it's also convicting. I think if they're where as parents, do we maybe even value our own status or our children's status over their holiness and their relationship with Jesus? And that's maybe something to just sit and think through. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you should hit pause on the podcast right now and think about that <laughs> listener. And then it, I think what you're saying is right. And I think verse 24, it begins, my translation begins with, so, so for the second time they called the man, so as a direct result of the parents saying, he's of age, ask him, they bring him back in right. and question him a second time. And this time it seems like he's kind of had it with the Pharisees. Yeah. He's like, I already told you. They, they ask him, how did this happen? And it's funny. They say, give glory to God and tell us the truth. We know this man is a sinner. And they they already convinced. So they're not really asking questions for their own sake to learn. They're just asking questions to try to catch this man. Uh, and he just says, I don't know why you keep asking all these questions. All I know is this. And I love this. Day. He says, all I know is this. I was blind and now I see. And you think this man must be a sinner, um, but I don't know how anybody that's a sinner could do the things that he does. I don't like you say he's demon possessed, but I don't think that this could have happened to me if not for God working through this man. Yeah. And then of course the chapter ends with the the Pharisees directly challenging Jesus, and they say, "Are we also blind?" Yeah, because uh, it's, it's interesting that Jesus says such an interesting statement there at the end, right before that. For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind, which feels kind of like a riddle. Uh, but the Pharisees pick up on what he's getting at. And they say, are you saying that we're blind? And Jesus then responds again. Uh, he says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And I think that that's the whole point of this entire miracle that he's trying to communicate is you don't think that you have any weaknesses. You think you see everything very clearly. Um, but in reality, you're blind and you need someone to help you see. But as long as you think that you're not blind, and think that you see everything perfectly, your guilt remains and you're going to be stuck in your blindness. Um, I think that, yeah, that's the big convicting part of this whole miracle that he's trying to get across after all the statements that he's been making about himself that they're refusing to believe. They're just committed to their own blindness and they refuse to see. Um, and yet if they would humbly admit that they're blind, he would help them and, and reveal himself more and more to them. Yeah. Which the gospel starts with us admitting our need for that good news. Right. Yeah, it's just that we we have to admit our need. Uh, we have to come as humble sinners in need of mercy and receive it. And and just like we see in this, he's compassionate to to give us our sight and to restore our life if we'll come with humility. Man, so good. All right, well, before I let you get out of here, I do want to ask you this. Um, and I imagine this is probably something you won't be able to spend a ton of time on in your teaching, and so I want to be sure and get it on the podcast. We've been talking about how John is showing Jesus at these various festivals, Jewish feasts, and how he, Jesus is redefining them. He's showing 
his people, the Jewish people, how all these things have always pointed to him. Um, what's the festival that's involved here, and how is Jesus redefining it? Yes, I think that's that is. I wish I could spend all of the time on Sunday talking just about that. So I think it's really unique, unique and creative how John's weaved all these stories together and how the events just all stack together to show something about Jesus. But this happens during the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's when the Jews would remember their time um, right after they've been rescued from slavery in Egypt, after the Passover, so they have their Passover feast. But the Feast of Tabernacles remembers the time that they were in the wilderness. Um, after that, in their wanderings, that they're, they're out in the desert and God provides water for them. Uh, and he guides them at night by this great pillar of light in the dark. He meets with them on Sinai and, and instructs them how to build the tabernacle uh, where he would meet with them, and it's this this unique holy place where his presence would come and meet with earth, and that they could come and meet with him and perform sacrifices and, and pray. Um, and that I, that symbol of fire and light coming down from the heavens to fill the tabernacle is symbolic of his presence. And so what they would do to celebrate this is all the Jews would come to Jerusalem, and they would purposely sleep in tents to remember when their ancestors slept in tents. There would be this... Um, ritual where the priest would take water from the pool of Siloam and pour it out over the steps of the altar near the temple uh, to remember God giving them water. They would light these big, magnificent torches up at the temple to remember how God's presence came at night and filled the temple. And they're looking back on that and remembering God's provision and his his, uh, presence with them in the wilderness. And they're looking forward to when God's presence will come back again and give them light. And so very intentionally, Jesus goes during this this, uh, feast he stands up and he claims that he has the living water that they need to come. He has the the, the living water that represents God's spirit and that flows out from the temple, that he is the true and better temple or tabernacle tabernacle where heaven and earth meet. Uh, he gets up and says, I am the light of the world. I am God's presence come to meet with you, um, which is really radical. And they challenge him on that and they're fighting and they're debating and they're going back and forth and back and forth. He's getting accused of being demon possessed uh, and they claim that they know more than him because they're Abraham's descendants. And then he gives like the Mac daddy of all I am statements at the end of that saying before Abraham was, I am. And they pick up rocks to stone him uh, because they've had enough. And that's when he runs. And that's whenever he sees this blind man. Uh, And I think that something about that moment that I'm so caught up in that I just keep thinking through is why did he stop in that moment? If they're on his tails, maybe about to stone him, why would he stop and engage with this person? Uh, And I, I, think it maybe has something to do with that he sees in this blind man an image of of the people he's just been talking to that they're blind and they're in need of help and compassion even though uh they are being so difficult for him and so rebellious and yet he still has compassion on their blindness and wants to give them sight and i think that's why he steps in and gives this really uh kind of an elaborate object lesson uh by this miracle of healing a person's literal blindness to expose their spiritual blindness um and then i also think it's neat because the whole feast of tabernacles ends with him giving the Another I am statement of I am the good shepherd uh, and my sheep hear my voice and they respond to me. Just like this blind man heard the voice of Jesus first uh, and responded to his voice and recognized him by his voice uh, and obeyed. And that's what gave him his real sight. And so um, there's a lot going on there. And so much, even that he sends the man to wash in the pool of Siloam, like he's very much connecting this miracle to the Feast of Tabernacles, I think. And it's, I I nerd out on it. I think it's pretty cool. Oh, it's incredible. Thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah, it's so it's so rich, and the more you study the book of John, the more you realize 
how amazingly well constructed it is mm-hmm. and what John's doing, working these different themes, the light and dark themes right, um, right. that we're going to continue to see in the weeks ahead as we move into the next section of this study and the the festival cycle. Um, yeah, it's an amazing, amazing Holy Spirit-inspired book. Well, Tad, thanks so much. Thanks for all the work that you put into the passage and for sharing some time with us on Sermon Notes. Believe it or not, we've only got one miracle left, and it's a big one. It's in chapter 11 of John, and we'll look at that one next time on Sermon Notes.